All right. Thank you for listening to the Patrick Ely podcast. As always, it's for entertainment purposes only. It is not financial or medical advice. We're still cranking out the content. I was just thinking to myself, when I get a new listener, I don't know what the chances are of them thinking to themselves before the episode's over. What the fuck is this? You jump in on one and you think you got a finance podcast. And then you listen to the next episode and he's talking about kids shooting their parents. You go to the next episode. He's talking about carbohydrates. I'll tell you what it is. This podcast is a unique offering. It's the Patrick Ely podcast is what it is. So I just had a pretty interesting weekend. On Saturday, I was booked to host and perform at a comedy show in San Francisco at a place called Wings and Things. I've been lucky enough to be performing in comedy clubs for a few months now. And for the most part, when you're booked in a comedy club, you can be confident that you're going to have a reasonable audience for your show. And that's not always the case when you're performing at bars and other random places. From the Googles, Wings and Things looked like a place where they sold chicken wings. So I was prepared for it to be a tough, potentially sparse crowd. I also didn't want to assume anything. Maybe it was a local hot spot and it was going to be a full crowd and maybe it was a really fun bar or venue that just happened to have a silly name like Wings and Things. So I get there and it is just a wing joint. There's no bar, there's no stage, not a lot of real seating. And as we get closer to showtime, there's no crowd. They set up the microphone right by the bathrooms. Again, not a good sign for a well-attended show. And the amplifier, the speaker, was some sort of plastic thing that I feel like you might buy for your own living room to do karaoke. When it was time to start the show, there were two audience members. There were more comedians than there were audience members. This was the worst crowd that I had ever been in front of, but I've been in front of pretty meager, underwhelming crowds. And something I've picked up in this first year of of doing stand-up regularly, is that when there's a very small crowd, you can't depend on your material. If you just try to go into your set, it's very hard to get any rhythm. It, it's very hard to get anyone to listen, quite frankly. So a lot of times it doesn't matter if you're telling the funniest jokes in the world. <clears throat> you might not get any reaction. What I'd promised myself after the last underwhelming show I'd had was that I would focus on doing crowd work with whoever was there in front of me. So once this show started and I was, I was starting the show, I was hosting it, I committed to seeing how well I could engage this two-person crowd. I made it 20 minutes, which is a long time to be performing in front of a couple of people. It went well. I had everybody laughing pretty much the whole time by engaging with them more than anything. There were two other comics, and they were funny as well. And I got paid the same regardless of who showed up. Actually, I would have gotten a bonus if the show had sold out, but I don't think it would be possible for the show to sell out. So I got paid the same as if there were 20 people there. And so I chose to make the most of it. From there, I went with uh, one of the guys that I had performed with who was going to be doing a guest set over at another show in like a hipster part of town. We get to that show. It's at some bar, and people are literally set up on the street out front of the bar. 
in my opinion, this is even worse than being in a chicken wing joint. And it was cold as shit. Everyone's in their coats. There are some hipsters huddled around you know, folding chairs around the sidewalk. And I saw several woke comedians that were pretty terrible. And then my buddy, who I'd performed with, went on and crushed a five-minute set. I think he got booked to do a real show there. And after seeing him do well, I got out of there. Before my stand-up show, I had gotten sushi near the Union Square part of San Francisco. Nice places were over there. And it was expensive. I think I had the equivalent of like two rolls, maybe three rolls for 70 bucks. And it wasn't all that good. I was looking for food that might be open at this point in the evening. I think it was around 11 p.m. And another sushi spot popped up about a half mile away. So I drove over there, and I ended up in an Asian neighborhood. I'm not sure if it was Japanese or Chinese. I think it was mostly Japanese. And there was this little tiny hole in the wall that served takeout sushi. There was nowhere to sit in it. It was just a little place where a sushi chef was making his stuff. And I ordered about $40 worth of sushi. It was half the price of what was in Union Square, and it was some of the best sushi I've ever had. Definitely go back. Ate it in my car, and from there, we went over to a jazz bar that's only a couple of years old, maybe only a year old, called G. Lou's. This was in a wealthy part of town, and the, the club was very nice. It had the vibes of a place in the 30s or 40s, uh, there were a bunch of pretentious white people in there. A lot of them dressed up in what looked to me like costumes, like they were pretending that they were from a different era. And then there were other people just dressed like douches in there. But the jazz musicians were great. I went in and went straight to the back. We found a place to sit. I didn't even drink. Just listened to the music. And I was in my hotel by around midnight. I ate some candy. My girl had stopped in this El Salvadorian bakery that was near the wing spot, spot before my show and had gotten some, like a variety of different things. And I had never had Trace Leches. If you haven't had Trace Leches, try it. This thing was amazing. So I munched out on that stuff and went to sleep. I slept well, woke up the next morning, and we had tickets to see the symphony. They were a gift from a friend, and it was to see this composer's uh, interpretation of Romeo and Juliet. On the walkover, we stopped at this place called Brenda's, which was French soul food, Louisiana style. And I've had very little Louisiana style food. Never been to a place like this. There was a long wait to get in. We timed it well. We only had a 30-minute wait, and we just kind of cruised around while we were waiting. But I had uh, crawfish beignets, fried oyster po'boy, catfish eggs benedict, and I was stuffed. I don't normally eat like that. We got to the Symphony's building, I think it's called the Davies, and this building is beautiful. It's all glass on the outside, and you go in, and every piece of the structure inside where the Symphony plays is built for acoustics. It's really neat for somebody like me to see. And we had these incredible box seats, saw some masters of various classical instruments. I had a hard time staying awake because I was so full of food. And then after the show, we headed back to the Central Valley. 
It's a weekend full of different kinds of art in different cultures, different neighborhoods. It was good. When I got home, I was checking the gram, and I caught up in a little bit of internet drama between some jujitsu guys. There's this guy, Gordon Ryan. He's the best grappler probably ever. He's certainly the best no-gi grappler of all time. He's trained under John Donaher. And he has an ex-teammate named Nicky Rod, Rodriguez. And they're going back and forth over steroids. Gordon Ryan doesn't deny that he takes steroids. And he openly says pretty much everyone does. And then this ex-teammate of his, Nicky Rodriguez, had recently been claiming that he was a natural athlete and had gone and done a drug test with more plates, more dates, to see if he was on steroids. I hate this kind of stuff. Now, first of all, I hate when teams make their drama public. And I know these guys aren't teammates anymore. But it would be nice, in my mind, if they'd keep their secrets until everyone's retired. I've been part of one of the most legendary MMA teams, UFC teams, whatever you want to call it, for, gosh, close to eight years now. And <clears throat> I could make this podcast pretty popular if I just went and talked about what goes on behind the scenes. But I purposely almost never talk about my team. I never talk about their business. High-level prize fighting, high-level anything, has so much that goes into it. And there's so little margin for error that exposing people's methods or you know what's really going on with a team, someone's injuries, et cetera, et cetera, can give someone else an edge. Maybe it gives another team an edge because they have an understanding of what's going on, or maybe it creates a mental deficit in your own teammate because they get affected by the public or another team knowing what's going on with them. It's not just with the podcast where I don't talk about what's going on with my team very often. I don't, I don't talk about my team in my daily life when I'm outside of my teammates very often, if at all. To me, it needs to be somewhat private. And also to me, in my life outside of martial arts, I need to make my way, earn my stripes on my own merit, not using someone else's popularity or reputation for my advantage. I'd feel like a sellout, like an imposter, like a fraud if I did that. I happen to know a lot about human health and athletic performance. I was a chiropractor. I studied neurology. I've done nutrition for years. I've I've done some work with people in Olympias who are bodybuilders and figure competitors and bikini competitors. I've worked with other kinds of professional athletes and fighters. And the monetization of people's reputation in terms of building a brand, a public persona, is so much different than the reality of what goes on in high-level sports. It's so different that if you tried to explain it to a regular fan, they probably couldn't understand it. And in my experience, they certainly don't believe you. For the last decade, it's made sense to me that it's not even worth trying to tell people the truth about what goes on in that world. And I've found the same is pretty accurate when it comes to trying to, to talk to people about how the stock market really works or what goes on behind the scenes of performers like actors and actresses and stand-up comics. The layperson just doesn't understand and maybe they can't. I mean, the layperson has reelected one of the most corrupt Republicans in history, Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, 
think for the last 20 years, and he's terrible and never done anything good for the state of Kentucky. And yet people there are, forgive me, but dumb enough to just keep electing him for God knows what reason. They don't want to know the truth. They don't, for whatever reason, want things to truly get better. They're more comfortable with the status quo. Status quo. I think I'm going to put a podcast out on fitness grifters after this one. But in this podcast, I want to circle back to Gordon Ryan, the jiu-jitsu great. So Gordon Ryan became famous and became like the black belt killer before he had a black belt with a completely different physique than he has now. I think he probably weighed 50 pounds less than he does today. And he started dating, got in a relationship with this woman who was a female figure competitor, bodybuilder, someone who takes a lot of steroids in their competition. And I imagine she's the one who started coaching him on nutrition and, more importantly, steroids, performance-enhancing drugs. And his body changed a lot. He became a heavyweight. He became very, very muscular. And this was on top of him already having incredible technical prowess that he had developed long before he'd you know, been on heavy cycles of steroids and when he was much smaller. Now at the upper levels of heavier weight class grappling, pretty much everyone's on steroids. And I'm not talking about a little bit. I'm not talking about TRT. I'm talking about a lot of steroids. Gordon Ryan, specifically, has publicly for the last five or so years talked about how he has all these stomach issues. And... While I have spoken to Gordon before, I've, I've never gotten, never attempted, not that he would want to talk to me about it, but I've never attempted to get into talking to him about what's going on with his stomach and, you know, what his lifestyle is like. For the same reason why I don't talk about, uh, you know, what really goes on behind the scenes of the stuff I'm involved with publicly. I feel like he has heard so many people's dumbass opinions that he wouldn't have really interest in what I have to say. And I also assume that he has some really intelligent people around him, some high-level nutritionists, some high-level people who do the whole performance-enhancing drug thing, and he's probably covered all of his bases. Maybe whatever I say would be not new information to him. But something that I have noticed over the years is I've never seen him eating an anti-inflammatory meal. What I mean by that is certain foods are irritating to the body. For instance, wheat irritating to the body even if you don't have celiac disease. In large amounts, even beans and brown rice are irritating to the body. And I've seen him anytime he's eating, he's consuming artificial sweeteners and in the form of things like, you know, zero calorie flavored beverages. I see him eating gluten. I see him eating a bunch of carbohydrates. I see him eating like a bodybuilder. And I can't help but wonder if he realizes that most bodybuilders have digestive issues because what you eat to get huge is often pretty inflammatory to the body's digestive system. If you're going to eat anti-inflammatory foods in the quantities that a a bodybuilder needs, it gets extremely boring. That's a lot of salmon and white rice and potatoes just over and over and over and over. When you're trying to eat a lot of calories... Typically, you'll see guys start, especially during bulking, they get into things like pizza and sandwiches and fried foods. And then when bodybuilders are dieting, they'll use a lot of artificial sweeteners and sugar-free products and flavorings, things to make chicken breasts 
seem uh, like they have some variety in their taste, but it's a whole bunch of stuff that is just yucky for your intestines and for your digestive system. And I've long wondered if at any point Gordon Ryan has had someone around him that got him to eat an actual anti-inflammatory diet. I have to assume that he has, and he just hasn't shown that. Apparently, he's been going to some fancy doctor in Los Angeles who's got him 85% better. He just said in an interview, and when he said this in the interview, he'd eaten a double cheeseburger and had a soft drink. And if I were overseeing his diet and trying to get him better from a legitimate stomach issue, even when he's feeling well, I certainly wouldn't have him eating gluten like a hamburger bun, and I certainly wouldn't have him drinking soda. So who's to say? But it got me thinking how many people don't understand what high-level athletics into adulthood, into middle age, is really like from a nutritional and training standpoint. Sometimes you'll hear guys who are in their 40s who train jiu-jitsu talk about how they just love training and they train every day. And usually the guys you hear talking about how they just train every day and they can train nonstop, they're usually fat. And the reason for that is, is that in order to recover from hard training, and let's just say in jiu-jitsu, but insert any difficult sport, in order to recover from hard training, you need a lot of calories. You need a surplus of calories so that the body can be using that fuel and those nutrients round the clock to try to recover for the next training session. And, and usually you can't fully recover, but hopefully you can recover enough to the point that you repair your tendons, ligaments, and muscles enough that they're not going to become injured. Another component of that is at the highest levels, most guys are on steroids. That allows them to recover better. It allows them to eat more also and stay leaner. A lot of younger guys, uh, like in their early 20s, who maybe haven't gotten into performance-enhancing substances yet and don't see a need, naturally have things like testosterone at very high levels anyway. And they also, you'd think, have some fancy diet, but like let's talk about fighters. A lot of fighters eat whatever they want while they're not in a camp to actually fight on a certain date. And when then when they have to fight, they just starve to make weight. They're not eating anti-inflammatory foods per se. They're just eating small portions of what they consider to be relatively clean stuff. But it doesn't mean that they're avoiding all inflammation and so on and so forth. As people get older and their hormones go down and injuries start to add up, you start to look for ways to be able to keep training at a frequency that allows you to you know, progress and keep up with other high-level people. And that isn't necessarily congruent with health, even though people look healthy and the common man or woman thinks that just exercising all the time is healthy. The reality of that for someone like myself is if I want to train three or four times a week and I also want to maintain a good physique, like I want to have a six-pack all the time, those two don't really fit together can't really train four times a week and eat clean or eat in a way that doesn't cause me to, to gain body fat. I can for a short period of time, let's say six to eight weeks tops if I was cutting weight for a competition. But it's been years since I cut weight for a competition and didn't get some injuries during that time. And that's from not eating enough to recover. If I was truly eating for recovery, I would just eat crap all day. Or I would eat large amounts of food. Not necessarily crap. Like I mentioned with the bodybuilders, I might 
say eat a lot of white rice, a bunch of potatoes, replenish my glycogen and and spike insulin, which is an anabolic, the most anabolic hormone, to try and get my body to adapt as best as possible. But unless you are a high-level athlete who makes your living doing that sport, that isn't really congruent with a regular life. The reason is, is you have to spike your insulin in order to have optimal recovery. And, you know, let's say I am training hard four days a week, I'm boxing and I'm grappling and I'm sparring and I'm doing rounds and I wake up every morning feeling like I got hit by a bus because I more or less did. And then I have to be eating in a way that makes me drowsy because high amounts of carbohydrates make you drowsy. And then in an ideal situation, I just lay around all day and do whatever feels naturally good, whether that's strolling through the orchard or playing video games. I don't play video games. This would be in a fantasy land because I don't make my living from high-level sports. And then my whole day would be geared around getting ready and having the energy and being wide awake to go train once, maybe twice a day. But I wouldn't feel like doing anything else because of getting hit by the metaphorical bus and also because of the way I was eating. Now, this also wouldn't be good for my actual health. And as a biohacker, I've tracked this for years in myself. When I'm training hard, my cholesterol is higher, my inflammation is higher, I'm falling apart. And when you're eating a lot of carbs to try to recover, that's hard on your insulin system. Bodybuilders end up with diabetes. As you get older, you become more sensitive to insulin. In a negative way, you get what's called resistance, meaning that your body doesn't utilize it as well and you have to eat more sugar to get the spike that you want. But then your body doesn't recover from that well and it has a hard time getting your blood sugar levels to healthy places. And you start ending up with prediabetes or metabolic syndrome. If you're wanting longevity... If you want to live for a long time and have those systems work well and not take a bunch of medications, you need to limit your carbohydrates. And limiting your carbohydrates does not equal good recovery or athletic performance, despite what you hear people lie about who are selling you diets or pretending that they're not on steroids and all of that jazz. Back to Gordon Ryan and Nikki Rodriguez, there's some selling going on there, especially on the part of Nikki Rodriguez, because... Like I said earlier, the common fan or common man or woman, they don't have any idea what's really going on behind the scenes. They make up things that they want to believe in. And there are plenty of people who want to believe that Nikki Rodriguez is a natural athlete. But of course he's not a natural athlete. And what we have to remember is that a lot of these athletes, like Nikki, Nick Rodriguez, I think is in his 20s. And he's not a chemist. He's not a doctor. He's not even a chiropractor. And he may not know a whole lot about the things he takes. He might take, let's say, testosterone because he sees the results it gives guys in the gym. He doesn't necessarily know how it works or what it does or what it's doing to his body. So he might truly believe that he can prove his natural status by going off of these things for a couple of months, showing up and taking a blood test that shows that he doesn't have steroid uh, worthy levels of certain chemicals in his body doesn't doesn't have traces of the steroids in his body and then pass that drug test and then go right back to doing the steroids 
The thing is, is that an educated eye can tell when someone's on steroids. And they also know that basic blood tests don't pick up on everything. And for somebody like me that knows enough to be dangerous, it's frustrating watching this stuff play out year after year, generation after generation, athlete after athlete with these fans that have no idea what's really going on and they buy into this drama. Same thing happened with baseball when I was a kid. People pretend not everyone's on steroids in the NFL. It's just that willful suspension of disbelief. But Gordon Ryan's not lying. He's, he's definitely been using steroids. You could tell from his physique for years. And the reason that a lot of guys cycle is that and cycle means take steroids for a short period of time and then go off of them and then go back on them is because to some degree that allows your natural hormones to keep being produced. In fact, one of the ways that people get around drug tests these days in high-level sports is they take very short-acting, small amounts of testosterone. They might take it every day, and it's, it's only enough to give them a little bit of a bump, but then it clears out of their body quick enough that the body doesn't really realize that it's on a testosterone steroid, and so it doesn't shut down the body's natural production. It might shut it down a little bit. They might go from having naturally relatively high testosterone to just moderate but then every time they take the testosterone, for instance, like a propionate ester, it spikes at the super physiological levels, and they have very, very high testosterone. Several hours later, it goes back to normal. But throughout the day, they're spending a lot of that day with super physiological levels of these hormones in their bodies, and then they're also taking other stuff that doesn't necessarily affect the testosterone levels that are still anabolic steroids and still augment their performance and their recovery and their development. Part of me wishes everyone was just honest about this stuff. So you didn't have kids kidding themselves. But then I also know you've got to be careful what you wish for. And if people knew what people really did, you might see more and more kids using steroids irresponsibly, which they already seem to be doing because of this Instagram and social media age and all of these social media influencer fitness grifters. And also, the beauty of sport might just evaporate because... People would be so obsessed and dependent on performance-enhancing drugs that the art of training and technique might evaporate, except for you know only the most dedicated. And the things that people get out of sports and competition are not steroids. They're the lessons learned from that training and from developing technique and discipline and working through adversity and around injuries and supporting teammates all that fun stuff builds character. There's no character built taking steroids. So the Gordon Ryan, Nick Rodriguez thing makes me wonder two things. They're, they're, they're both the same thing, but in their respective, on their respective teams in their respective worlds. How educated are the guys on steroids that are part of Nick Rodriguez's team? How ignorant are they truly? And how much of this is just lying for social media? And for Gordon... Of all the high-level people he's had passed through his world, has he ever had a real nutritionist who understands the chemistry of food and inflammation processes in the body? I expect that he has. And I expect you just don't see uh, what he really has to eat. But boy, wouldn't that be a bummer if he could have fixed his stomach issues, which I'm sure are very real, just by eating cleanly, and he's never had any expert around him actually be an expert on real nutrition. Maybe they're just an expert on how to get from point A to point B and, and building muscle, but not how food actually interacts with the human body. I wonder.